Hello, everybody. My name is John Mark Day, and I serve as the Director of Leadership and Campus Life at Oklahoma State University. I'm also happy to be your host for the NASPA Leadership Podcast, just presented by the Student Leadership Program's Knowledge Community. Today, we will be discussing a recent edition of New Directions for Student Leadership, which is entitled Leadership Development Through Campus Employment. I'm thrilled to welcome the editors of that issue, Adam Peck and Kathleen Callahan. Uh, Adam serves as the Assistant Vice President and Dean of Student Affairs at Stephen F. Austin State University in Nacogdoches, Texas. He also serves as a graduate faculty member in the Higher Education and Student Affairs Program. Uh, he has served as editor and co-author of the book, Engagement and Employability, Integrating Career Learning Through Co-Curricular Experiences in Post-Secondary Education. And he serves as editor of the Scholarship to Practice Brief section of NACA's Journal of Campus Activities, Research, and Scholarship. Adam has been named one of the champions of assessment by Campus Labs and has received the Founders Award from NACA for contributions to the field of student activities. Uh, welcome, Adam. Thank you so much. And our second guest is Kathleen Callahan, who serves as a lecturer for leadership studies at Christopher Newport University in Newport News, Virginia. She also adjuncts for the graduate program in higher education at the College of William and Mary. She has served as Region 3 historian for NASPA for over 10 years, and she recently completed her service as the Leadership Scholarship Member Interest Group Chair of the International Leadership Association. She has over 30 scholarly presentations and publications. Kathleen, welcome. Thanks for being here. Hey there. Thanks. So start off for, for both of you. Tell us you know, this work that you're doing around student leadership and, and student employment. How did you first get interested in this work that you're doing? You know, I'll, I'll tackle that question first and, and just say, you know, you mentioned in the bio that um, the work that preceded this had to do with connecting uh, the skills that students gain from co-curricular experiences to the uh, skills that employers desire most. And so it sort of began with a, an assessment project and an epiphany. The assessment project was based on the idea we were going into a legislative session in Texas, and uh, we're always looking for ways to tell our story through data. And so I was looking at the work of NACE, the National Association of Colleges and Employers, particularly uh, their job outlook survey that they give every year, and they ask employers, what are the skills gaps? What are the things that you're wanting in new college graduates that you're finding difficulty uh, in finding folks with those attributes? And the epiphany was that those were the exact skills that students were gaining through their experiences outside of the classroom. Teamwork, problem solving. Uh, I mean, what is a student organization if not an exercise in teamwork and problem solving and planning and organizing uh, and setting priorities? These are all a part of that experience. So it sort of occurred to me from that standpoint that if we were able to measure those skills, we'd be able to demonstrate the impact of student affairs in a way that we really have never been able to before. Making that connection to student employment uh, really had a lot to do with uh, the idea that students sometimes find themselves outside of the ability to have these experiences. Uh, indeed, the more hours they work, the more likely they are to take that time away from co-curricular experiences. And so the idea was, could we make student employment a more robust learning experience for students? And uh, that's really where this work began. And then I, I, I have to say I drug Kat into this uh, without kicking and screaming. Uh, and uh, Kat contributed a lot to it. 
Yeah, so my interest um, is a, a little different. Uh, mine's more of a perfect storm of simply <laughs> I got an opportunity to teach leadership um, while I was getting my master's degree, then again in my first full-time job, and then again in my Ph.D. Um, so I jumped into leadership via the faculty realm. Um, I also was a student leader uh, and worked on campus as a college student and really worked with a lot of paraprofessionals in housing over the years. And so the perfect storm is just that background in student affairs, student development, and teaching leadership, um, and me wanting students, whether they can you know, be a part of an organization or whether they can't get involved because they're working part-time, full-time, um, and just being able to help them through identifying as a leader um, in whatever capacity. Well, and I think that's, uh, you know, a very familiar story for all of us, right? We, we have one job that gives us some set of skills or experiences or equipping, and that leads to something else. And sort of before we know it, we've gone down this path we never would have imagined. And so, I, you know, I want to find out for both of you, tell us about what was your very first job uh, and what is something that you still carry with you from that experience? You want me to go hmm. first this time? I will. <laughs> yeah, um, sure. So, I mean, really, from what I was just discussing, um, it's not obvious, but obviously, my first job was um, as a residential learning coordinator. So I ran residence hmm. halls and residence life. Um, and I think most employers in the real world, if they have any knowledge of um, residence life, know that if you have somebody that was an RA, um, they have a skill set that most graduates do not have. Uh, and from being on call to conflict mediation to um, whatever happens, um, those are daily lessons that I, honestly I still carry with me today. Um, you know, hearing a cell phone ring, a particular uh, ringtone is always <laughs> devastating. Um, but also knowing that in my classroom I have students that have lives that impact them outside of the classroom that then impacts their work in the classroom and I am able to give a little grace in a way that other folks may not. Um, so I think that's the biggest takeaway for me is just, guess what? Our students are real people too and they have lives outside of the classroom and it's important to recognize that. Absolutely. Yeah. Adam, how about you? You know, it's funny. I interpreted this question a little bit differently. Uh, I thought you meant first job ever. Uh, and since Kat has already covered my first job, I was also uh, an RA in college. And uh, I will say uh, there's a chapter in our edition of NDSL that talks about the important role that paraprofessionals play and, and how we might meet their specific needs. And so I'll just plug that really quickly. But my first ever job, I was a paper boy. And uh, in fact, uh, you had to be a certain... You had to be a certain age to be a paper boy, and I don't remember what it was, but my brother was that age, and I was a little bit too young, but we essentially split the route, so uh, he would do it every other day, and then we would work together on Wednesdays and Sundays. Those are big coupon days, yeah. and at one point, uh, I had a, a 6 a.m. Uh, paper route, so it had to be on the porch by 6 a.m. I woke up at 4.30 in the morning most days. Uh, to deliver papers, and then as I got older, there was a period of time where I delivered uh, one newspaper in the morning and one in the after 
afternoon after school. Wow. And to this day, I, I never hit the snooze. I'm one of those people who I actually have this freaky ability that I most often wake up a minute or two before my alarm goes off and I have the discipline to just turn it off. And, you know, I think that some of the, some of the skills that really translate into student affairs are sometimes you just got to get the job done. You wake right. up, you're not feeling totally well, you know, you, but you've got a major event and you're like, there is zero chance I'm not coming into work today. Or, you know, you hit a little adversity or it's rainy and uh, you don't want to come out of your house or get out from under the covers. And sometimes you just got to do it. So uh, I, that job I credit quite a bit with uh, providing me some sort of work ethic and, and uh, you know, grit, I would guess. Yeah, I would say the the ability to not hit the snooze in the morning is a very significant life skill that uh, would set up pretty well. I just so, I tell people all the time, I go, the snooze is not your friend. He tells you he's your friend, but he is not your friend. He's, he's only giving you another eight minutes of sleep. It's not that's worth right. it. That's right. You know, so that's, that's funny because actually my very first job was as a paper boy as well uh, when I was in middle school. and. What I took from that as a as a uh, still as a profession was a pretty significant caffeine addiction uh, because our house was the exact halfway point of my paper route, and so my dad would meet me on the porch as I would walk by the house and hand me a cup of coffee, and so I got started <laughs> off right as you know as an eleven year old uh, throwing. Those so. Wow. Um, but you, but well, yeah. maybe that's where my caffeine addiction came from too. <laughs> You know, but I think this is this is the this is the point of what you all are talking about, right? Uh, lessons that we learn as we go through our jobs that uh, we may not be intentionally learning them or intentionally reflecting on them, but uh, can be really really crucial lessons for us. And so we'll get into that in in a minute. But uh, first, you know, just getting to know you both a little bit more. The the last thing I want to know about that is tell us about something that's outside of what we. Would the traditional leadership canon that you're reading or watching or listening to uh, that's giving you some good insights into leadership right now? Um, so for me, uh, and I don't know if they speak directly to leadership, but they are helpful for some of the things that I'm teaching in my classes. Um, but so all the issues, so Vixish, Blackish, and Grownish, mm. all three of those shows have, like, I'll just be watching them and particular uh, lessons on identity development or just a different way for me to approach a particular topic in class um, has been really, really helpful, and they're just great shows. Um, for uh, my classes, so I'm actually going to be teaching a lesson uh, here on RBG uh, after Thanksgiving, so I'm kind of watching her documentary and reading her book, um, and I'm preparing for a class next semester in leadership and values. Um, in which I am planning on using Captain America's Civil War. Um, oh. Again, things that students are interested in, things that I am very interested in, um, <laughs> but I think they make really great connections to students at a different level where they can understand ethics and values in a different way when they're applying it to something that they maybe have already seen. Um, or are interested in. And then, of course, The Mandalorian. Even though my students aren't watching that, I just can't help it. And I'm sure, Adam, have you seen it? <laughs> I haven't, no. No! <laughs> <laughs> 
You know, I have to, I have to tell you, when, every time I tell people this, they just can't believe it, but I live in a rural part of Nacogdoches where we don't have very good bro- broadband. We don't get Netflix at my house, and oh my I don't know if that's – or whatever streaming service that's on. So literally, if I ever moved someplace with consistent Wi-Fi, I would probably never leave my house again. <laughs> Yeah, I haven't seen The Mandalorian yet either, but the only thing I know about it is Baby Yoda. That's just like, that's blown up all of my social media feeds. It is the most adorable character. I mean, better than Baby Groot. We've really moved (laughs) forward in our adorableness. And we obviously know it's not Baby Yoda, but... um, Right. Yeah. But it's honestly one of the best things done. Um, the story is already incredible connecting it into the Star Wars uh, realm. So just uh, very excited. I think the next episode comes out today maybe. So really excited oh. about that. Well, I guess it was, so you've got your weekend planned then. Yeah, that's right. Mm-hmm. So, so Adam, what about you? If you're not, if you're not streaming, what are you uh, watching or listening to or reading? Uh, I am I – am, um, uh, I guess uh, I'm reading books. Uh, <clears throat> I, can, I can tell you, I do, I do manage to get uh, some uh, entertainment at my house. But, you know, as much pleasure as I take in reading new things, I also love rereading things. And so I've, I've got a student who's in my student government association who wants to be a comedian. And one of the things that is not listed in my bio is that for about 10 years, I did professional comedy. I did stand-up comedy on college campuses, uh, comedy clubs, corporate events, uh, did improv comedy, things like that. And so he's kind of taken me on his, as his comedy mentor. And uh, so I recommended the book Born Standing Up. It's a memoir by Steve Martin, who I find endlessly fascinating, you know, a, tremendous uh, movie star and comedian who also plays the banjo and puts out banjo albums and writes uh, plays and op-eds for the New Yorker. And, you know, I've just always found him very fascinating. And the memoir is about his journey as a stand-up and how he sort of blended his background in philosophy, uh, which is what he had studied in college, and how it all came together into this extremely surreal and strange uh, stand-up comedy act. I mean, for younger folks listening to this, you may uh, think of Steve Martin as having always been a movie star, but he was a very groundbreaking stand-up comedian. And um, I I find there's an extended portion of it where he talks about performing on college campuses. uh, And... uh, as a guy who came out of the campus activities environment, it's really kind of interesting to hear it from the artist's perspective. So uh, I'm reading it together with this student. I actually bought a copy of it for the student, uh, and uh, we plan to talk about it soon. So I think there's a lot of connections there, especially the, the idea of, of truly trying to achieve something original, which is quite hard to do. Yeah. Well, and I think, you know, there's there's a, such a close tie to that, to leadership, right? A big part of leadership is bringing about something new. And, and you know, we look at things like the social change model, right? We're really anchoring in uh, moving things forward and, and creating something where there hasn't been something before. And you're right. I mean, that, this idea of comedy ties so closely to that. So uh, these, are, these are great. I, good things for me to sort of take on and, and look at and think about. Well, so you all uh, have written and edited this uh, edition of NDSL focused on student employment. And in that, 
you make the argument that we should be considering student employment as a high-impact practice. Uh, what does that mean? And, and when we think about it that way, how does that change our view of student employment? Yeah. Well, you know, from my perspective, there's been a great deal of excitement about high-impact practices for quite some time. Uh, and the reason is that it in many ways validates the work that we do in engaging students. You know, students who are deeply engaged in, in experiences tend to derive benefits both not only you know, socially or in terms of their retention at the institution, but in the development of, of higher order thinking skills. And, and also, I mean, uh, quite literally, it comes across in their composite GPA. And so that excitement, I think, sometimes has been a little bit misplaced, which is that we get excited about the platforms of high impact uh, practices, which is to say, service learning, or sponsored undergraduate research, or writing intensive courses, writing across the curriculum, things such as that. And those are really great experiences. But what people often uh, don't necessarily acknowledge is that those are not really the high-impact practices. Those are a receptacle for the high-impact practices, which is uh, things such as frequent feedback about your performance, active collaborative learning, engagement with faculty members uh, and, and I think staff members inside and outside of, of a traditional classroom, uh, exposure to diverse viewpoints and diverse perspectives. Those are the active ingredient in, higher impact, in high impact practices. Um, it is quite possible to have a service learning program that is of terrible quality uh, because none of those conditions exist. You know, uh, George Koo and, and, and others uh, produced a book a few years ago called A Good Job, which essentially made the case for student employment as a high-impact practice. Hmm. And so we really uh, owe it to our students to step up our game with regard to how we treat student employment. Hmm. It can't uh, simply be a financial aid program. And that's often how we treat it. In fact, I think some well-meaning folks uh, say, you know, we've got a great student work position for you. You can work at the front desk of this residence hall. You can do your homework. You can, you know, talk to your friends. You can, you know, do whatever you want. We're not going to ask anything of you whatsoever. And that student could have had the opportunity to gain some skills if we would have found ways to truly make student employment active and collaborative and, and gave them the chance to develop those skills that we know you can gain from a high-impact experience. And so particularly in the opening uh, chapter that uh, Kat and I wrote together, we make a strong case for applying the impact of high-impact experiences to student employment. Mm. So you know, I think that's a, great, that's a great point. I mean, none of this is done without a lot of, of thought and reflection and intentionality, whether it is service learning or uh, collaborative work or student employment. And so who's doing this well? What great models are out there and, and what can they teach us? So we definitely have quite a few highlighted within um, our edition here of NDSL. Um, throughout the different chapters, and we have we brought in some incredible authors um, to talk about those programs and what they're involved with. Um, one of those very large programs is um, at Stephen F. Austin State University, where um, <laughs> where Adam is. Um, That's helpful. But, uh, you know, it, it, you know, no big deal. Uh, 
Um, <laughs> but, you know, I think so it's important for us to think about these models as uh, promising practices, which Brett Prozzi kind of, he highlights it because there's no one-size-fits-all. We like to see um, models, so we like to see the social change uh, model, and we like to see the leadership identity um, model, uh, developmental model, and we want to like put that exact same thing that, say, you know, CNU, Chris Newport University is doing. We want to put that model on a big institution. It just doesn't work that way. So Brett uses promising practic practices simply to say, this is what we do. It works for us because of our size, our demographics, our location, all of these factors. Take what would work for you and, and do what's necessary. So he gives a really great example at, at, at uh, Weber State um, where he was. Um, and I think what his intention within his chapter and what he's discussing is simply you need to have some sort of framework. You need to have some sort of identification of what leadership is, um, and then you're applying that to a program itself, whether you are taking a competency model, um, whether you're taking NACE, uh, those, those skills um, that Adam's going to talk about probably a little bit later, um, whether you're taking the social change model of leadership. So for example, in the last chapter, um, we have Fred um, who's talking about how they use the social change model of leadership at the University um, of North Carolina at Asheville. Um, and it's all based within the social change model. They, from, um, from hiring and even, even the marketing, um, but hirings and training um, to the assessment uh, and evaluation of student employees, everything looks through the social change model of leadership um, development, which we can do that in a lot of different ways. Um, there specifically with the student union, they are looking at how those positions, you know, contribute to the, the seven C's, so from the individual, the group, and the community. And you can really target and identify um, your students within those positions or even the level of those positions for the different parts of the different models. Um, and so that's just one really good example. There's also uh, the Staley School of Leadership Studies at Kansas State. Um, and they, it's the curricular with the co-curricular, but they really encourage their students to advance their own leadership development through the LID model, so that leadership identity development model. Um, and again, very similarly, they are looking at the different stages of the LID model and where those students um, and so it can be, in, the, in those early stages, it may be a one-time thing. Um, but later on, it, it may be more intensive training to help them understand their own leadership um, through the lens of the LID model. Um, and we can do this with the paraprofessionals. Uh, Adam mentioned we have a chapter uh, about paraprofessionals. But thinking about how we program for um, in the residence halls with uh, our first year, you know, first year students are very different than our upperclassmen and looking through the LID model, we can see and kind of target programming that might be helpful for first and second year students versus upperclassmen. Um, and same thing with our RAs specifically. First year RAs versus second and third year RAs are going to have different developmental needs. So being yeah. able to utilize the frameworks and these models to help us help them um, 
whether it's the lid model, so you know, leadership identification, um, or actually going through social change model where we're looking at self, then group, then community. So it's really seeing where our students are in the employment, and if we're hiring first-year students versus upperclassmen, we, we have a basis of understanding of where they may be developmentally. Um, and then designing those positions around um, where they may be and providing training and providing evaluation and providing the mentorship or the good company um, to help them get to that next phase uh, as they go through their experiences. So those are just a few. Um, there's all the Iowa Grow program is another one that's discussed in the um, in our volume here. Um, but there's really a lot of great promising practices, and I think Adam may have some other things as he talks about kind of the next piece. Yeah, so this is interesting. I mean, Adam, you've actually done some, a lot of research around this, and you have developed uh, a model that folks can look at and use called the Co-Curricular Career Connections Leadership Model. Uh, tell us a little bit about, about what that is and, and how we can apply that in our work. Sure. Well, you know, <coughs> we call it C3, and if anyone wants to take a look at the model, uh, it was published by NACE a little over a year ago, and you can actually just Google C3 Leadership Model uh, and NACE, N-A-C-E, and it comes up. It's free, and, and uh, the intention there, we're looking at co-curricular experiences quite broadly, but encompassing uh, student employment as well. And one of the issues that we were hoping to address was, you know, you will see now more and more in strategic plans at institutions all over the country this desire to integrate learning between the classroom and outside of the classroom. And if you ask most student affairs professionals, uh, well, if, let's start and say if you ask most faculty, they'll say it's either not possible or not desirable uh, because uh, learning in many ways, uh, I remember Marsha Baxter-Magolda and the late uh, Peter Magolda's book, Contested Issues in Student Affairs, there's a whole chapter called, If Academic Student Affairs uh, Collaboration is Such a Great Idea, Why Are There So Few Models for It? Hmm. And I think it still speaks to that challenge. But if you ask student affairs folks, how do we do that, we will pair it back to you without much thought, this idea that uh, we give students the opportunity to apply skills they're gaining in the classroom. And that sounds great. And there's only one minor problem with it, which is that it's not true. And the reason it's not true is that it is not possible. How could you meet the, you know, the learning needs of students in every single major or curriculum within our campus environment? <clears throat> How can I make a chemistry student better at chemistry by participating in student government association. If that's happening, you should stop it. That sounds really dangerous, right? Uh, we don't want them playing with chemicals in the SGA office. But the path to integration is if we do focus on these uh, sort of transferable skills and transformative experiences like the kind that NACE has identified, and if the best source of technical skills, uh, those skills uh, that make a chemistry major better at chemistry, happen in a chemistry classroom, and we provide a context for that same chemistry major to learn teamwork and problem solving. Do you know what they call a chemist who can talk to people? They call them the boss, right? And so that's what we want for our students. We want them to have leadership throughout their career. 
So our model is intended to provide a structure for that. And so what we really suggest is that as students become more deeply involved in experiences, we want them to gain higher order thinking skills. So it's not enough to say, if you're in a student organization, you should learn communication. Communication isn't one skill. And uh, my favorite metaphor is, it's not a Pokemon. You can't just catch it and then it's yours, right? It has nuances and, and it takes time to develop. Uh, and so what we recommend is the alignment uh, of learning outcomes with Bloom's taxonomy of learning, specifically Bloom's revised taxonomy that includes creativity at the apex. Um, so what we do is we put students in three different conditions. We call them involvement, engagement, and leadership. So involvement is a student who is either new to an experience or participating at a surface level. They could be a new student employee. They could be a person who just joined a student organization. Those students, we're going to target learning outcomes based on lower uh, order learning outcomes, the ability to remember or understand. What is the purpose of what I'm doing here? And you know, what am I expected to do? And then at the engagement level, this is a person who's actively participating in the work of the group. And so those students, we want them to gain intermediate skills. So we want them to be able to apply and analyze. It only makes sense that you're going to, if you're actually doing the work of a group, then you are applying skills, right? And then you're going to hit roadblocks and you're going to say, maybe I need to do this differently, and you're going to analyze. For uh, students who are in leadership positions, both formal and informal, uh, those students we think could develop higher order thinking skills. And that is, uh, you know, the ability to evaluate and create. Um, you know, I'm going to create strategies for doing this work better. I'm going to see how well that works. Those are things that leaders can do. Now, it may be harder for some folks to see this connection in a uh, context of student employment. And sometimes people will say to me, so does that mean that I need to have like different levels where students are managing other students? No, it can be as simple as asking them to uh, work collaboratively on a project. So for our student workers, we've done various things like ask them to manage uh, part of our social media and make recommendations for us as to some messaging for that and work together collaboratively to do that. So, uh, you know, I, I've said we a whole lot in this. I should reference that my co-author is Dr. Michael Preston with the Florida Consortium of Metropolitan Research Universities. He also contributed a chapter in the book, uh, or in, uh, in the NDSL, about the impact and possibility of working uh, to develop the leadership capacities of off-campus employed students. Um, there's some uh, great benefits that can be had there as well. So, uh, I encourage anybody who has an interest in this concept to uh, take a look at the model. And it's, uh, it's being used, in fact, uh, not only throughout the country, but uh, I know in a few places around the world. Hmm. I think it's great, you know, this idea of, of helping a student grow and, and make those connections and thinking about their developmental process as they go is so useful. Um, so if students aren't learning chemistry in most of their on-campus jobs, uh, what are they learning? Generally, what leadership lessons do we see connected to campus employment for students? You know, I'll start off uh, with that and just say one of the most important and formative aspects of that 
is for us to have goals for what they should learn. You know, I think that there is a possibility, you know, uh, you joked about if they aren't gaining chemistry skills, there are jobs in labs. There are jobs uh, the chemistry majors could have uh, on their campus to help them develop the technical skills that they'll need in their job. Absolutely. It begins with us recognizing that there is a potential to learn uh, those, you know, what are sometimes called soft skills or uh, 21st century skills. There's so little that students don't know. I had an employer, or there's, so, there's so much that students don't know. Mm. I had an employer tell me a story about a student uh, that was working in their office. This was an off-campus employer. And the student needed to make some long-distance phone calls, and they gave them the long-distance code, and they couldn't seem to make it work. And so the, the employer tried the code out, and, and uh, it worked for them. And so they said, I don't know what you're doing. So they went to the student's desk, watched them make the phone call, and what they discovered was that the student wasn't dialing one before making a long-distance call. That mm -hmm. student had never made a long-distance call on a landline before. And yeah. on a cell phone, of course, you don't dial one. Now, it's popular sport to tell stories like this and, and to make the moral of that story. Look at these kids today. They don't know anything, right? <laughs> but the reality is their world doesn't involve dialing one before you make a long-distance phone call. And so... You know, I, I always say when we see a bad resume or something like that, we go, yeah, but the good news is we got it before an employer did, you know. So in this case, the student gains that skill. So, you know, we could make a case for any myriad number of skills that students could gain from these experiences. But the truth of the matter is what we really just want to encourage people to do is to give thought to what they should learn. And then this is the really important part make sure that we put in the experiences that will help them gain those skills. You know, even the foundational theory of student, uh, of uh, uh, experiential learning doesn't say that students learn from experiences. That's often misinterpreted. What it says is they learn from reflection on experiences. So we've got to make sure that they have those experiences and that they get to make meaning of them. And, and uh, Kat mentioned uh, Sarah Hansen's chapter, uh, which talked quite a bit about uh, reflection and, and their work with Iowa Grow, uh, and it's a wonderful model for embedding reflection into these kinds of experiences, particularly student employment. Okay. Yeah, so let's talk about that. Then for an employer who really wants to uh, embed leadership lessons and, and, and make this an impactful experience for students, what can they do? How can an employer provide leadership education in the context of the job? Uh, so I really, Adam absolutely started on this. So one, having a purpose, uh, providing learning outcomes, a vision, a vision uh, working from a framework like we talked about before. You know, similar to so many models of leadership, purpose is at the center of everything we should be doing, right? So um, students and offices or employers should have a core purpose, core values, core mission, whatever they're working from. And students should know that and should be able to articulate that upon request. Um, and it can be something so simple, you know. But so providing the basis, that kind of core foundational framework, um, they should be also providing mentoring, uh, mentoring students, connecting concepts, uh, whether it be how to call somebody long distance, and uh, that was going to be one of my examples too. <laughs> um, <laughs> That's funny. Very much, 
we should be, you know, as Marsha Baxter-McGolda talks about, we should be serving as good company. Um, we shouldn't be telling students what to do. We should be guiding them there um, and, and helping and supporting and giving them the resources that gets them to that next space. Um, and then assessment. <laughs> um, we should be evaluating and assessing not only our students but the positions that they're in, the things that we want them to be learning. We're assessing those learning outcomes. Um, and again, Brett really talks about this in Chapter 2 uh, where he's talking about some of this. But we have to set those very specific and measurable goals to be able to assess and achieve. Um, like you know, Adam was saying, they're not Pokemon cards. We can't say, did they achieve communication? Check. Uh, right. Did they achieve critical thinking? Oh, yeah, they did. Uh, <laughs> it's so much more than that. So what are the specific pieces within those that we want them to achieve in those roles. And, that, and that's really how to do things intentionally. Hmm. So one of the things that you all have brought up in this conversation and is kind of a theme in this issue is this idea of, of access and how you know, embedding leadership education into an employment process can provide access to folks who may not be able to otherwise access leadership development. Can you talk a little bit more about that? How does that happen and, and what do we do with that? You know, I, I think this is part of a broader problem in higher education, which is that sometimes there can be a great temptation to see students' experiences through the lens of the students who are having the best experiences. Mm -hmm. You know, this is what student engagement and leadership looks like, and it looks like being actively involved on campus and seeking leadership positions. But for so many of our students, that's just not their experience. Uh, you know, we can see that students are working more hours than ever before, and that, is, that presents tremendous uh, difficulties. And so for some of these students, the, the other thing too is that what it looks like at the end is them crossing the dais with a diploma in their hand, going out, getting a good job, building a good life, following uh, all of those external formulas that uh, Marsha Baxter-Magolda <laughs> pointed out to us. And um, there was some recent research, I wish I could cite it, um, that said that students, uh, first-generation college students and historically underrepresented students don't end up gaining the social capital necessary for the happy and successful lives we want them to have, and they don't gain them to the extent to which their, their peers who are less at risk do. So we can't fool ourselves that, that a college degree alone is a panacea. Uh, for a lot of students, it doesn't work that way. So what I would suggest is that improving the quality of learning, out, uh, learning experience that uh, comes from participation in student employment is a moral imperative for us. Um, if these students are going to take the time uh, that they would get involved in other co-curricular experiences and use that time working to try to uh, you know, pay the increasingly uh, high cost of a college education, we need to up those experiences. We need to be intentional about them. We need to make it good career prep for them. Um, and I think that's also true for students off campus. You know, I'm, I am... Uh, I'm involved with Project CEO, <laughs> which is a national uh, study that Campus Labs uh, facilitates, and, and I work with them on that. And one of the disheartening findings that has been consistent since the beginning is that students tend to attribute more learning to their off-campus jobs 
than their on-campus jobs. And I think it probably illustrates a point that Vince Tento has made, which is that no one rises to low expectations. Uh, until we have higher expectations of all of those students, uh, I don't think we'll see the kind of learning outcomes that are possible uh, from employment on or off campus. Yeah. I, so what about for our folks then who may not be employers but are leadership educators? I mean, if, you know, if we want to provide these lessons uh, and opportunities and learning for students, um, sometimes it's going to be on us as the educators to help all of our students see those, make those connections, whether there are student employees or not. And so how do uh, leadership educators who are not themselves employers of students help these students make these connections and help them connect the dots? So one, I love the moral imperative, Adam. That's just fantastic. <laughs> oh, and thank you. I think this may be one of the answers um, because, and I say this, students have to go to class also understanding they don't have to. Um, but it is in the classroom is the space where we can, in fact, get to and talk to and have share space with every student. Um, so maybe this is one of the answers. But the, the practical application of theory in class is so important. So what are we doing in class? How are we connecting what we're teaching to what they are doing outside? Whatever that means. So when uh, you know, I'm teaching a lesson, um, you know, and I don't know, my leadership and values class or my leadership through the ages class, how am I bringing in and kind of connecting what they're learning in the classroom with what they're doing outside of the class. We simply have talked about, again, the curricular and the co-curricular. Even when we have models, they still may not be communicating. There still may not be connection in between the two. Um, and that is where we are losing our students. Students are in, some students are involved outside of the classroom. Some students are working outside of the classroom. But uh, are they really taking, uh, yeah, this is what group process, group development looks like. This is what, um, you know, certain, how we can address power in certain situations within my, within my job. Are they drawing those connections? And the answer is often no. Uh, and that's coming straight from my students' mouths when I ask them. Um, and so the, the answer is, in class, you, we know growth mindset. So when we have a chapter, Amy Baldwin talks about growth mindsets um, and how we help our students develop those. One of those ways is through, uh, Adam already men mentioned Sarah's, uh, Sarah Hansen's chapter with reflection, but it's the use of reflection within leadership. And we can do that in the classroom space, whether that's giving time for reflection, whether that's journaling outside of the classroom, whether that's a part of their papers and assessments, whatever that may look like. To be able to think about the concepts that we are teaching, and again, this does go for every major field um, because just as our chemistry majors are learning um, in the classroom, when they are in their labs, they are practicing. So how do we connect those two? Um, and this, this touches on Kolb's, that experiential learning and that reflection as a key piece to understanding and to drawing those connections to what's happening. Because even if they do have an off-campus job that is not you know, teaching 
uh, nice skills or has learning outcomes for them. We can make practical connections, just like being a paper boy, we can make <laughs> practical connections to almost any job, even jobs with low expectations. Even if that's what not to do, we can make those connections. Um, and that's our responsibility as leadership educators and practitioners. Well, that's great. I, you know, I, I'm really appreciative of this conversation and, and the work that you have done. I mean, it, you know, this is so potentially transformative for so many of our students, and, and I, I get really excited about this idea of taking an experience that so many students have and, and need to have and infusing this leadership education into it. And so I appreciate the great work and, and thought that you've put into this. And you spent all of this time thinking about student leadership and student employment, and what a great conversation. But now I want to know what's next. What is the next question about leadership that you are each thinking about? Well, you know, it, in the uh, continuing the, the theme of gratitude, uh, let me just acknowledge at the end uh, uh, Susan Comavez and Kathy Guthrie, uh, who this was really their vision. So, uh, and to for the two of us to be invited to it. I mean, the day you get an email from Susan Comavez uh, and it's uh, telling you that uh, she wants to work with you, it's a pretty special day. So, <laughs> I know Kat feels the same way. Uh, you know, for me, I'm really trying to drill down into the intersection right now between <coughs> uh, leadership development and skill development, particularly as it pertains to student learning theories. Uh, I didn't mention this, but in the C3 model, we provide a structure for intellectual development, which is Bloom's Taxonomy of Learning. But we also provide one for skill development, which we call the five A's it is probably the most frequently cited uh, aspect of the model in that <coughs> there really wasn't a parallel uh, for Bloom's uh, to skill development. Bloom's has, has a, a way of describing it, but to me it, it did not jive with my personal experiences. And so the five A's were awareness, acquisition, application, advancement, and articulation. And uh, you know, a lot of people get, I think in my mind, get this uh, backwards, which is they say we need to do more to help students articulate the skills they're gaining. And I think in that way they're often falling prey to what uh, uh, Michael Preston and I actually published in a previous NDSL edition that we called the field of dreams fallacy, this idea of if you build it, they will come. Well, we think if we do it, they will learn. Well, no, learning has to be intentionally constructed. It's not just absorbed by the student. Uh, and so application <laughs> provides a gateway uh, for us to improve a skill and then hopefully be able to explain it to others. But to articulate something, you have to understand it very well. Uh, and so, you know, the process of learning often involves taking something simple and making it complex, but then the circuit isn't closed until we've taken something complex and made it simple enough we could explain it to others. Uh, you know, I think many of us, especially those of us that teach, have uh, know the feeling of getting up to talk about something you don't know very well and then realizing that you're not very capable of explaining it. Right. So, you know, uh, I'm actually uh, 
I've been, I do a lot of speaking uh, on college campuses, and in fact, I'm really excited to mention that I'm uh, going to be doing one of the essay speak section, uh, sessions this year at NASPA, and uh, it's on a, to- a topic I've been toying with, which is that I teach the audience to juggle, and I invite uh, multiple people to come up and learn to juggle in front of the audience, and we walk them through those five stages of learning, and we talk about the midpoint of that that I don't think is very well known, which we we refer to as the knowledge skill continuum. Um, There's a point at which I could teach you to juggle and you could basically explain it to me without being able to do it yourself. And so there's a difference between what we know how to do and what we can do. Uh, Mm -hmm. And so I really want to dig into that uh, a little more broadly and maybe even uh, hopefully at some point do some theory building around it. Oh, that's awesome. That's the idea of, of learning how to juggle on stage in front of a whole bunch of people <laughs> at sounds terrifying. Uh, you know, I, there were some know. early iterations of that in which I was trying to teach just one person to juggle, and it was way too much pressure. So I went and I invested in multiple sets of juggling balls, and it's sort of the proverbial, if you gave enough monkeys, enough typewriters, somebody would eventually write War and Peace. Every single time, someone learns how to juggle. So. Yeah, and then you don't feel so bad when you're not the only one which is all flying everywhere. So Exactly. Well, I yeah, can juggle clean, yeah, I can juggle handkerchiefs like Kleenex because they float. Oh. Like that's oh. how I learned. And so Be careful, Cat. You're about to get a starring role. <laughs> oh. Yeah, so we're gonna put the, the link to, we're gonna put the link to Cat's YouTube video of juggling scarves on the uh, Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Oh, gosh, I would make it look so dramatic. Um, yeah, so for me, I'll be honest, um, I, I, you know, Adam has been very, very strategic in how he has progressed his um, scholarship within this particular area. Um, I, I am a teacher at heart, um, and I, my number one goal in this world is to take students from where they are and move them forward in some capacity, and sometimes that means moving backwards, but it's that challenge and support. Um, And so looking at things like the LID model um, and helping students make real-world connections to what they're learning so that we don't continually have students that are graduating from college who have leadership classes or a leadership minor or a major but then cannot articulate, then cannot connect those things in their first role or, um, you know, in their real-world job. So for me, it's really that theory to practice and helping students to recognize what they can do, what they do know, and how they can connect that to their field of study or whatever they end up doing. Um, and so that that's one of the biggest things for me. Um, but what I really want to know is this issue that we have brought up multiple times in this conversation of how do we access the students that are not overly involved and overly saturated in leadership? And let's also, this idea of saying that all students are leaders is not, is not necessarily the great thing to do. You know, understanding that followership is a key fundamental element of what we do um, in leadership studies. So how do we access these students that aren't involved on campus that, you know, we may not have within on-campus positions? Um, 
how do we how do we engage those students and help them make those connections in the real world? So that that's a question that I have. I'm the big picture person. I don't know how to tackle that. Um, <laughs> but I mean, that's a big fundamental question for me. It, so. it is. And, uh, I mean, that is one of the, I think, the biggest, most underlying questions in our field, right, is how do we, mm -hmm. and, and I think the work that you're doing here with the student employment gets at some of that. How, how do mm -hmm. we provide these experiences to students who may not ever walk through the door of a leadership center or enroll in a leadership class but still have that potential for this great learning? So You know what, though? There, there is also, there is a step before that that is critically important too. And, and I struggle with this far more than I struggle with getting students to make sense of what they're learning, and that is how do we excite our colleagues to make these better experiences? You know, I, I, like I mentioned, I go to a lot of campuses. I speak. I like to think that at the end of my speech, it's been a mountaintop experience and people are eager to try it out. But I think a lot of these efforts fall away. We're going to have to get energized uh, for yeah. embedding this. One of the great potentials of student employment is how scalable this is. If we can just figure out how to get people to really want to do this work, it has the potential of solving that problem that Kat has identified that is critical. How do we keep them from graduating without knowing how to apply what they do and explain it to others? Absolutely. Well, I think that's a great place to, to leave it. I think that's, that's going to give us a lot to think about and some really great directions moving forward. So thanks, everyone out there, for joining us for the NAP Leadership Podcast presented by the NASA Student Leadership Program's Knowledge Community. Huge thanks to our guests, Adam Peck and Kathleen Callahan. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you so much for having Thank us. Thank you. Absolutely. You can get more information about the Knowledge Community on our various social media outlets, including uh, Twitter. We're at NASA SLPKC. Or Instagram. We're at NASA underscore SLPKC. Uh, you can connect with me on Twitter. I'm at John Mark Day. Uh, we're going to put Adam and Kathleen's uh, social links on the podcast description. And if you are interested in being a guest on the podcast, if you have suggestions for topics we should be talking about or people we should be talking to, we want to hear from you. You can email us at nascaleaderpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks, everyone, for listening, and we uh, will be with you next time.